God's word. <clears throat> Lord, we know that uh, none of us can fully understand all of your ways. We know that there are things that happen that are um, mysterious as to why there seem to be uh, delays, why there seem to be times in which our path goes in directions that we don't expect. But Lord, we know that uh, nothing in our life is ever wasted. That there's a reason, purpose for all things. We thank you that you have given us many promises to hang on to when we struggle to try to make sense of what to us doesn't really add up. And so we pray for insight as we look into this portion of your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are in the business of taking your word and through the gospel, changing people's lives and equipping them so that they can be useful to you and a blessing and helping other people to know you as well. And so, Lord, uh, teach us what it means to be disciples and to be people who make the gospel known and to be on ministry, in ministry every day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the gospel is indeed, as we saw last week, if you're not with us uh, on a regular basis, you need to sort of hear the previous sermon. Uh, one builds on the other as we make our way through the book of Acts. We saw last week that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is capable of transforming even the worst enemy of the Christian faith. Uh, Saul of Tarsus underwent this amazing, complete reversal. If you'll recall, it is Saul who was approaching the city of Damascus. He did so as a ruthless persecutor as one who was coming to eliminate all of the followers of the way, that is, the early followers of Christ in the early church in that town. But he left the city as one who was persecuted for being a follower of Jesus Christ. Saul's name could be added to that wonderful list of people for whom it can be said, such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Indeed, the gospel is powerful. Now, you say, we're not sure how long it took, but I think it's important to be reminded that Saul's powerful transformation in his conversion came about as a conclusion of a, a bit of time, we're not sure how long, of God who was goading him, who was uh, uh, sort of prompting him to change, to go in a different direction, to stop trying to obliterate and to oppose Christ, but to follow Christ. And so the Lord had been working on him. The Holy Spirit had began to convict him of sin. And finally, his heart itself was changed. And along with that, now we're seeing there's a change in his attitude, there's a change in his outlook, there's a change in his loyalties, there's a change in his message, and even his motivation. And through the gospel, Jesus gives the worst of sinners a new beginning. Praise God. He gives us a new beginning. And what follows Saul's remarkable Conversion, what comes next, and this is where we're picking up today, having now beginning in verse 19b. What now? Well, he begins to serve Christ. And that's what every follower of Christ is called to do. We're to serve the Lord who saved us. 
by His grace. But before that happens, it's important to understand that yes, He began to share the gospel. That was something He immediately began to do. But it's also clear in this passage, and this is what I want to draw our attention to today, that Saul needed to undergo further preparation. As we compare Scripture with Scripture, we're going to learn that Saul did not immediately assume the role and the responsibilities of being the foremost missionary and church planter that the world has ever seen. There's some time that goes by. Look at chapter 9, verse 23. Chapter 9, verse 23 of Acts, we read, And when many days had elapsed. What does that mean? How many days is many days? Well, you say, well, that was many days. It's tempting to think because he used the word days, we're thinking, well, let's think of days. But he's really thinking in a large portion of time. How do we know this? Well, you need to compare this passage with Galatians chapter 1, where Paul recites this account of his conversion. And he says, actually, what took place at this many days is that he left Damascus and he spent three years in an area he calls Arabia, which it's not today's Arabia. It's more like a desert area running from east of Damascus all the way down to the Sinai Peninsula. It's an area that's not highly populated. And he's in this particular vicinity, somewhere in that area, in which he is out of operation. He's not, we, don't read, we don't know anything about what's going on. He's away from his ministry involvement in, in ways that we have any record of. If you also will notice, at the end of chapter 30, sorry, chapter 9, verse 30, they brought Saul down to Caesarea, which is actually down means from the elevation of Jerusalem, down that big uh, high, high area elevation altitude-wise, brings him down to Caesarea, which is in the north, right on the Sea of Galilee, a very impressive city that Herod the Great had uh, renovated and built up. And then he sends him from there back to Tarsus, his hometown. So he goes there, and that's the last we hear of him until you pick up in chapter 11, verse 25. So chapter 11, verse 25, we pick it up, and we all of a sudden hear, uh, and he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. That's Barnabas. So here's another gap. Where's Saul? What's he doing? Some estimate that the time gap alluded to in this particular silent gap may have been at least about seven to ten years where he's off into the north area, sort of where he grew up. Now, I've given you on the back of your sermon notes, don't take the whole time now to look at it, but I just want you to know on the back of your sermon notes is a little bit of a, a chronological uh, record of what is estimated to be the, the different accomplishments of Saul in his, um, in his lifetime. So you can understand sort of how that unfolds. And some of these things, I think, will help you fit in those things a little more clearly. Now, I think we've all seen an example uh, with uh, hearing the news about uh, Alicia, by the way, congratulations, that, uh, that there's no army that's going to send their soldiers out without some significant portion of training. It's also true that athletes that we're now watching in the Olympics, they don't just show up and say, okay, I'm ready for the Olympic competition. 
they have gone through what, what I think is true for many of them, years and years and years of training. So my question this morning is, what process is God often using to prepare His servants? That includes Saul, but it also includes the likes of you and me and every follower of Jesus Christ. What, how does He want to prepare us to be involved in gospel ministry? Well, first of all, we're going to learn, uh, first point here, I want to, for Saul and for the rest of us, we have to learn the necessity of relying on the Scriptures in order to provide faithful gospel witness. Relying on Scriptures. So I think I had mentioned last time that Saul, because of his background, he studied on Gamaliel. He had become a Pharisee as a person who was an expert in much aspects of the law. And so he had spent years and years and years studying the Old Testament. That was the only scripture they had at the time. And it's likely that he had memorized vast portions of it. I would not imagine that's true of you or me if you come into the kingdom of Christ. Many of us have no idea our way around the Bible. We've hardly heard anything of it. Some of us have been around the Bible for a while, but certainly I don't think any of us have half the knowledge that Paul had when he comes into the kingdom of Christ. But the problem was that his knowledge about the holy writings, the scriptures, at the time before he was a believer, they were mostly just a bunch of rules. He viewed them as rules that had to be kept. But now, after Jesus revealed himself to Saul, the Holy Spirit opened his mind. He now begins to understand more clearly that the Old Testament pointed to Christ. The Old, Old Testament, the Old Covenant, is pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment to all these different things that were mentioned there in the pages of the Old Testament. And so you'll notice in verse 20 of chapter 9 in Acts, only a few days after Saul is converted, immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. By the way, I would argue that many people at that time who were like Saul before his conversion, were saying Jesus is the son of Joseph, right? He's just a normal human guy. He's a guy who's just a regular Joe Schmo. He's from this remote part of Galilee and Nazareth. He's just an ordinary person. But Jesus, uh, Paul is saying here that Jesus clearly is God. That's what he's saying. He's the son of God. He is, not, he is divine. He's not just a mere ordinary human. And then verse 22, Saul confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. Now I assure you that Saul did not try to convince his fellow Jews about the identity of Jesus based on his own vision he just had. He doesn't convince them based on some miraculous blinding and then a res restoration of his sight that occurred to Saul himself. He doesn't go around and talk about, listen, I heard this voice from Jesus in the clouds, and I'm telling you, it's all based on his own experience. No, that's not the way he's going to persuade these people. He devoted his time to thinking through, in just those original days, the scriptures were what he was using to convince his fellow Jews that Jesus is not merely a prophet. He's not just merely a good teacher. Saul cited the Old Testament. He pointed out that Jesus is God. Now, hold your finger right there in Acts 9 and go over to Acts chapter 26. 
You say, how do you know that he's saying these things? Well, Acts 26, verse 19. I'm having a hard time with this microphone today. I don't know what's going on. Listen to what we read here in Acts 26, verse 19. He says, he's talking to King Agrippa. He says, I did not prove disobedience to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should, what? Repent. Here's his message. They should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. And so having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both the small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. He's drawing from his knowledge of the Old Testament. And what is that knowledge? Verse 23, that the Messiah was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he should be the first to proclaim light to both the Jewish people and the Gentiles. And on and on he goes. You get the point. The point is he's using the scriptures to try to help explain who Jesus was. And if you read Paul's writings, clearly he expanded on that as the time went on using Psalm 2 or Psalm 110 or, or Isaiah 53. These are all God-breathed or God-inspired scriptures that he's quoting. And now that he'd been confronted by Jesus Christ who had been raised from the dead, here is Saul. He understands with a new perspective that Jesus is indeed the unequaled, unmatched, unique Son of God, He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord, He is Jesus, and Messiah is the word there for Christ. So Saul's treasure is Christ, the eternal, uncreated, second member of the Godhead. It was his understanding of Scripture that convinced him that this is indeed Jesus' identity. And Jesus is the anointed one. He is the greatest and final prophet. He is the righteous king, Paul would say later on. He is the holy priest who offered himself as God's sufficient sacrifice of atonement. Here's my point. If you and I are to have a Christian witness, the witness that we share with other people needs to be, needs to be and must be built on truth. It cannot be built upon our opinion and it can't be built necessarily upon our experience. Truth is rooted in what God did in history. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when Paul recites the gospel, what does he say? Jesus died for our sins. What comes next? According to the Scriptures. And that He was buried. And that He was raised again from the dead. According to the Scriptures. That is the gospel. It's based on scriptural truth, which is based on what? What actually happened in history that God has done? Our most effective witness is not going to be our clever arguments that we put together with various skillful logic. At some point, people have to be confronted with the truth of who God is and what Christ has done and what Christ is uh, demanding that people do based on what the scriptures teach, not on what you and I are saying. So Saul shared what he knew of the Scriptures. And the result is, look at verse 21. 
chapter 9, Acts 9, people were startled, they were amazed. The word there comes from the Greek word means ecstatic. They were just dumbfounded. Here's the guy who knew all so much about the Old Testament and was convinced and had said so for years that Jesus was just a a prophet or a teacher. He's to be ignored. We know that we have the law and the Messiah has not come yet. But now, here's the man who sought to destroy anyone associated with Jesus is now proving that Jesus must be, according to the Scriptures, he indeed is divine and he is the Messiah. And one of the tasks that Saul accomplished while he was in Arabia was to think through all that he had learned before he was saved and to bring those things together, to bring them in line, so that Jesus he understood to be the fulfillment of so many shadows, so many types, so many of foreshadowing of things that were pointing to the fulfillment in Christ. And indeed, if we're to be effective, it might be helpful for us to know and be able to know your way around the Scriptures to say, well, what's a verse of Scripture that teaches that Jesus is God? What's a portion of Scripture that you can point to that points out that Jesus is is human as well? What portion of Scripture can you point to that show that Jesus was the substitute given by God to do the work of of, uh, atonement that we need? Isaiah 53. So knowing these kind of things will help us become better prepared to answer questions and also to help people understand what is the gospel. So the better we know the scriptures, the better we are in being prepared for ministry. Amen? Amen. So keep reading, keep studying, keep learning. It doesn't happen overnight. It took Saul at least three years, if not more. And we'll talk more about that. Second point. Learn the necessity of relying upon God. Learn to rely upon God. You say, where did you get that? Well, Paul was already a brilliant man. He was already a person who was persuasive in his ability to use a well-thought-out argument based on Scripture. And Saul, nonetheless, spent time out of the limelight. Even though he came with all these tremendous gifts, natural gifts of a sharp mind, incredible intellect, and tremendous knowledge of the Word, God did not immediately put him right in the limelight and said, okay, here we go, here's our guy, let's have somebody, let's create this big um, uh, movement around him immediately. It's interesting to notice that Saul had to be time out of the spotlight reading and thinking and praying. He stayed in this remote place, not three weeks as I said, not three months, but three years in Arabia. God assigned him to a place of seclusion. Some have suggested that it's an interesting contrast between Moses, who remember he spent time there on Mount Sinai learning what God's instruction to him was, giving him the law, and now here is Saul coming back and he's being instructed in what perhaps a similar area could be still in Sinai, and he's giving us the, the remedy for lawbreakers, learning more and more about the grace of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Who knows? But the point here is that the daily disciplines of personal Bible reading, the daily discipline of just personal prayer, are essential if we hope to gain the mind of Christ. If we're to be involved in effective ministry that advances Christ's kingdom, Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. 
And so leaning and depending and becoming reliant upon the Lord is so important. And I think I appreciate the songs we sang today. It said, take time to be holy. The world rushes on. Isn't that true of us? When was the last time you sat and pondered spiritual thought? When's the last time you carved out time in your schedule just to sit and be still before the Lord and think about the goodness of God and the grace of God? Surely Saul knew how susceptible a new believer is to be overcome with pride and a sense of self-importance that gets way out of balance. If you put someone who's brand new in the faith and you give them uh, a very immediately responsibilities of being a, a very important leader, Paul knew looking back on that, he said he warned against placing people into leadership who are new believers, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And so what happens with Moses then? He's a man with tremendous skills and abilities based on his uh, upbringing. He had 40 years of being there in the household of Pharaoh. He spent 40 years in Midian, tending to a bunch of livestock, way off the scene of what was seen to be very important in life. And God used those years to prepare him to shepherd the flock of God for 40 more years when he led the Israelites out of Egypt. Even Jesus Christ spent 40 days in the wilderness doing battle with Satan at the beginning of his public ministry. So I wonder if there are some of us who wonder, you know, how is it that you say, I'm in this challenging situation. God has placed me here and I'm wondering, for what reason? Why am I still stuck in this place? It's not an easy place to be in. For some mothers... They feel as though they're cut off from others and they have all sorts of unique challenges and situations that have to do with their children that they endure and, and deal with. And, and it leaves them wondering, why is this happening to me? Why do I have to face this with my child? My answer, one of the answers I would offer is God's preparing you. God is preparing you. He's teaching you valuable lessons to learn to rely on Him. Others of us, Maybe are a situation in life where we're still single, and we wish we weren't single. We wish we, our status was different. We wish that we had, we're, we're no longer uh, in the situation we are. Things have not worked out the way you'd hoped at this stage of your life. May I remind you, is it not possible that God is preparing you? Some of us are in a situation where we're facing all sorts of challenges with our job, and we wonder, why has God not reassigned me why haven't I gotten that promotion? Why am I not in a different location? Why have things not changed the way I was hoping they would to another situation? Could it not be that God wants you to learn a valuable lesson where you are? And that He's at work in your life using this situation as a means of teaching you to trust His promises. Of teaching you to learn how to persist in prayer. When you're going through a difficult time, what do you tend to do? You tend to pray more earnestly. You tend to pray more often. You pray with more intensity than you do when what? When you're going down easy street and everything's fine. And is it not possible that when you go through times of difficulty and struggle and waiting on the Lord, that you gain valuable insights in the Word as you yourself dig into the Word, looking for God to give you help, give you a word of hope, give you a reminder of His great promises and grace, 
and you draw those things out of the Word yourself? I almost put this on the back of your sermon notes, so um, I didn't, but uh, there's a poem. When you first hear it, it sounds a little bit severe, sounds a little bit too extreme, but I think there's some good truth to it. And it is not limited just to man, men, but it, the poem, it's anonymous, don't know who wrote it, but it says, When God wants a man. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world should be amazed, watch his methods, watch God's ways, how ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into shapes and forms of clay which only God can understand. It goes on and on and I won't go through the whole thing. But the point here is what? I'm not trying to suggest that God is trying to destroy your life. I'm trying to suggest that God, in order to prepare us for what he wants us to be useful to do in the, down in the road in the future is you are going through a situation in trial. God can use you and that experience you learn to minister to other people who similarly go through that same challenging experience down the road. And that's what Saul had to learn in his place of being out away from the limelight. And God was teaching him during that time to rely on him. Thirdly, real quickly, what else do we need to learn in our time of preparation? We need to learn to face opposition from other people from the forces of evil. We need to learn to develop a proper view of our own importance. Those are powerful lessons to learn, aren't they? If you look at verse 23 of chapter 9 in Acts, you notice that Saul began his Christian life early on in those first few years. It was evident that there was opposition to what he was declaring about Jesus. Not only was he the one who was dishing out the opposition for years, now as he's a follower of Jesus, he's beginning to receive the same in-kind treatment by those who didn't want to hear what he had to say. And that opposition continued on. His evangelistic ministry was met with mockery and insults and all sorts of mob violence and injustice. But you know, Jesus encountered the same, didn't he? You think about it. In John 15, Jesus says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. So I think that one of the things we need to prepare ourselves for, and it's coming, folks. I'm telling you, and you see it, don't you? It's going to become more and more strong opposition to the Christians, people who follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. They are going to suffer more and more opposition and pushback and intolerance and all forms of, I think, uh, uh, challenges are coming our way. And we need to teach ourselves, teach our, teach our young people, to teach our children that the world is going to take offense to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gospel ministry is going to lead us to broken relationships at some point. It's going to lead us to insults at some point. It's going to lead to hardships at some point. Leave your finger right there in Acts 9. If you'll turn a few pages to the right there and go to 2 Corinthians 11. 
I hope that your list is not going to be as long as this list. I don't think mine's list is ever going to be as long as this list from Paul. But look at what he described as a list of difficulties that he went through due to his faithful gospel proclamation. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Now I'm going to skip around through here, but you can follow along. He mentions that he went through, verse 23, imprisonment. He's put in jail. Beaten times without number. Can't even tell you how many times he was beaten. Often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. I have been in danger from false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. And in understanding this idea of weakness, which is his way of saying, I am not some boastful apostle who's telling you, oh, look at me, how wonderful I am. That was all the false apostles who were trying to minister to the Corinthians. He's saying, listen, I'm a true apostle, but look at the way I was treated, though. And all my weaknesses were evidence of the fact that I was being faithful to the gospel. And then he says, in Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king of Arabia, was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. What's he saying there? Well, if you understand a walled city, people built, built to have their homes uh, in which one wall of that home was the outside wall of the city. And he's saying they had put a guard at all the gates, the ways of in and out of this walled city. So he said, I had to actually go into somebody's home and they opened the window at night and they let me down some big basket down the side of the, of the wall and I got away. And he says, here I was prior to my conversion. I was an important person. I had an entourage that would travel with me. I was known to be a person of great accomplishment. People looked up and respected me. And here I am sneaking out in the wee hours of the morning under nightfall in order to escape in a basket. They let me down through a basket. He says, how humiliating. He says, well, that's my humble position as a follower of Jesus. He says, it's not glamorous all the time following Jesus. There are situations in which we must humble ourselves and rely upon other people and admit that God will put us in situations in which we don't sit there and say, look how great I am. One of the things that we need to learn if we're involved in ministry, and we're going to be useful to Christ, is we have to learn that our weakness, we will experience weakness because people are opposing us. It's going to force us to be more aware of how weak we are and how difficult it is not to become responding in the flesh to people who show us anger and injustice. It also is going to teach us that none of us is indispensable. Not one of us is indispensable. See, we're not the only ones who can fill certain ministry roles. Certainly I am not. There are many people who can serve in this capacity. And the point is, none of us is indispensable. Are we valuable? Yes. Are we, is it important that you be here? Yes, but we're not indispensable. You need to be careful that we not assume that we are. For example, if you take your hand and you take your hand into a, bu- a bucket of water, let's suppose, and you take your hand, you put your hand into that bucket of water, what happens? The water will displace 
the volume of what is taken up by the hand of your hand. You put it in there, and the water will... And then you take your hand out, it, what? Is there just a left a hole in that water now? No, it just fills right back in, right? As if the hand wasn't even there. And the point is that you and I need to understand the church can and the church will go on without you or me. It's not about you and me having to be here to make sure things function and continue on. It's about learning to trust that God is greater than all and we serve in our weakness and He can raise up others if He needs to any time along the way. And I think Paul realized that. I think Paul realized he needed people all around him. He was not a one-man show. And that leads me to my final point. He needed to learn in his time of preparation, and we need to learn in our time of preparation to partner with other people in ministry. Partner with other people in ministry. If you look at verse 26, is it any surprise then that when Saul presents himself there in Damascus, that the response there among the believers is that they are initially what skeptical about this guy they were all afraid of him it says verse 26 not believing that he was a disciple are you surprised by that that is such a, a, a realistic uh response it's not not even funny who could blame them but you know it's this response is based on the fact that this guy had a track record. He had years and years of being a person who was violent, who was opposed to the church of Jesus Christ, who hauled off Christians, put them in jail, put them to death. And here they're being asked now to welcome this guy into their fellowship. And so God uses Ananias to do that. Tell you what, let's use this microphone. This is not working. God uses Ananias to be the person that welcomes him into the church there in Damascus. And then he uses what? Barnabas later on to have him welcomed in the church in Jerusalem, which is what? Three years later. They're still skeptical about this guy. They've heard it. They've, they've known he's been around. And, and Barnabas has to go through and explain it all to them again. And, and what happened? Look at 26, chapter 9, verse 26. Saul attempted repeatedly to associate with the members of the church there in Jerusalem. But he was not successful. Look what he says. Look at the verb. He was trying <laughs> to associate with the disciples. He kept trying. He kept trying to make his way in. It's like, I don't know. I'm not sure I'm going to stick around here and listen to this guy. I'm not going to get real close to him in a, in a prayer meeting and close my eyes when this guy's sitting in there with a the group of everybody. I'm not closing my eyes with him around. God bless him, Barnabas. Oh, what a wonderful, wonderful Useful, strong, godly believer who did what? He believed in the best of other people. He saw the potential of Saul. He saw the change that was happening in Saul's life. And so Barnabas takes a risk. He said, no, look, welcome this guy in here. Come on. He urged those believers not to reject Saul. And he reminded them the members of that church in Jerusalem, that Saul had seen the Lord and that Saul had begun to proclaim the true gospel and so therefore he was to be welcomed. If it had not been for Ananias and Barnabas, Saul would have been unable to what? To forge these partnerships with the church in doing local outreach and in doing missionary 
endeavors in church planting. And so I think it's a good reminder for you and me that we need to be looking for the potential we find in people who are young in the faith. Don't give up on them. We need to keep praying for them, keep encouraging them, keep discipling them. And remember that ministry is not executed by one person cut off from everybody else. It's not a one-man show. Saul's ministry, as he took the gospel to Rome, he took the gospel to Macedonia, he took the gospel to Asia Minor, it was underwritten, it was sustained by, it was supported with the prayers and the gifts of all sorts of believers. And we need to learn to see ministry as a team effort. It's not a solo effort. I'm sure that there were some uncomfortable moments. If you look at Galatians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, again, Paul is recounting what happened in his early years of first being a believer. He goes back and reminds us, look, I spent two weeks in Peter's home. Fifteen days, I think he said it was. Wouldn't you love to have heard the kind of conversations that took place in that home? It probably was to the effect of something like Peter saying, do you realize what damage you did? Do you realize how many people's lives were ruined by what you sponsored, what you propagated, what you were actually taking place and under your leadership? Do you know how many people's lives will never be the same? I can just imagine his struggling to say, how can we welcome you in here? Look at what you did. And there must have been some very honest, candid opportunities to extend forgiveness to each other. To put the past in the past. And to also build trust based on the gospel. Because that's what they now had joining them together. (laughs) I'm sure that some of them were mistreated, a number of the believers in the past, but that is indeed... That wrongdoing, perhaps you can identify with that. Perhaps you're a person who says, well, I've had lots of things that have happened in my life that have been difficult from the hands of other Christians. And your reaction to that has been, huh, I'm not doing that again, or I'm not going to become vulnerable. I'm not going to let that kind of closeness between me and another believer happen again. I'm just going to sit on the sidelines, and I'm going to be around, but I'm not going to really be open and vulnerable, and and I'm not going to really... Uh, share my life deeply with another believer. May I suggest to you, my friend, that's what you see the gospel doing here is bringing these people who had very difficult challenges to overcome to become what? Unified in Christ. But that's what the gospel does. That we need to learn to minister together and part of that ministry is learning to say, I have to learn to accept you with all of your weaknesses and struggles and difficulties in your past And I have to be willing to say, I I give you grace and you're going to give me grace. And therefore, we need to learn to be open and vulnerable and trust other believers. You say, well, what is the gospel? The gospel says, Tim Keller says, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared to hope. And so learning to love other people who are also flawed is what God has done to us in the gospel. The gospel enables us to forbear each other. Yes, we will not always agree with one another. And I think Paul struggled with 
learning how to deal with this difficult John Mark guy who, who forsook the group, you know, on that first missionary tour. And he just said, uh-uh, this guy's out of here. I'm not working with him anymore. I think Barnabas, again, later in life showed him, hey, listen, don't give up on this guy. He's got things to offer. He's got things to, he's been through some time of training. He's useful to the kingdom. And so there'll be for you and for me, part of our preparation is learning how to work through our struggles, through our conflicts, through the challenges that come in relationship. They're not, they get messy sometimes. But the gospel gives us a path through those things so that we become people who understand more of what it means to forgive, understand more what it means to be someone who's forgiven us for the glory of the gospel. I don't know about you, but I find myself still going through lots of preparation for what God has in store for me down the road. May the same be true of you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are the God who saves, the God who sets free those of us who have have histories and have a past, Lord, that just is like a a ball on a chain that we drag around with us, Lord, we thank you that you set us free from our past. It doesn't mean that all of our difficulties will go away because of maybe past decisions we've made, but Lord, we thank you that all the guilt and the shame from our past can certainly be washed away. We thank you that you welcome us in the gospel. We thank you that you love us because of Christ. We thank you that you give us a new beginning. And we thank you, Lord, that because of the gospel, you see the value of what we can become through the time of change and preparation and through lessons learned. So Lord, I pray for someone here today who, who are struggling with where they are. I pray that you would draw them to yourself. Rather than running away from you, I pray that these things would help them to run toward you, that they would be, understand that you're doing a work in their life. Pray, Father, that you might teach us more and more to know your word and to be able to use it and to able to understand it and able to explain it, able to show people what it says. Lord, we pray also that you would help us to not be surprised when we're mistreated and when people make fun of us, when they are offended by what we say. Lord, help us, we pray, to be patient and loving and kind. And to realize, Lord, you use this as part of your means to keep us humbly relying upon you. The more we think about our Savior, the more we realize that you are calling us to walk the path that he walked on. And so, Lord, have your way with us. Remind us of your love. Remind us of those around us that we also need to share this love with as they, too, claim the name of Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified as we share some time around your table and, and filled with wonder and amazement at your grace shown to us through Christ, who gave himself for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.